Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Going to continue our series in Revelation called Unveiled Hope. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. Uh, and this morning's passage can be found on page 1028. Um, and it is, uh, this is a great joy, I think, each and every week to be able to open up God's Word. But um, part of the reason that we're singing that song, um, Marvelous, is because God is doing something real and unique among us. Um, he's renewing our vision and our hope and our passion for Jesus. Um, and, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about as we look at Revelation chapter 2. So all these things are uh, connected, but it's such a joy to see the relationships that are building and forming. And God is just making us into something that is beautiful, not because we're amazing, but because He's amazing. All right, Revelation chapter 2. Um, as I've just looked out at the just the state of our country the last couple of weeks. I wonder if you've had some similar thoughts maybe that I've had. Um, What is it that makes someone kind of part of a hate group? You know, Um, what what goes wrong in someone's life or heart that would make them be on the wrong side of the protest in Charlottesville? You know, what what is it that's going on inside of them? Um, And I came across recently um, this TED Talk from Megan Phelps Roper. Uh, she was uh, a member of Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know. Uh, we may have a, a picture of her. Um, if you're familiar with the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, they definitely don't really fit in any kind of orthodox uh, view of church. I mean, this is nothing more than a hate group. Um, they protest soldiers' uh, funerals and uh, picket uh, every kind of Uh, gay rally that they can find, and uh, she begins to share her story, and I think it's interesting, and it ties in a lot to what we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 2. So I'm just going to read some of her story, how she became and grew up in Westboro Baptist Church, and also how she began to make her way out of Westboro Baptist Church. I'm going to make some comments on how that applies to us. This is Megan Roper in her own words. She says, I was a blue-eyed chubby-cheeked five-year-old when I joined my family on the picket line for the first time. My mom made me leave my dolls in the minivan, and I stand on a street corner, heavy in Kansas humidity, surrounded by a few dozen relatives with my tiny fists clutching a sign that I couldn't read yet that says, gays are worthy of death. And this was the beginning. Our protests soon became a daily occurrence In an international phenomenon, as a member of Westboro Baptist Church, I became a fixture on picket lines across the country. The end of my anti-gay picketing career and life as I knew it came 20 years later, triggered in part by strangers on Twitter who showed me the power of engaging with the other. In my home life, I was framed as an epic struggle between a spiritual battle between good and evil. The good was my church... And its members and the evil was everyone else. My church's antics were such that they were constantly at odds with the world that reinforced the otherness on a daily basis. Make a difference between clean and the unclean, the scripture says, and so we did. From baseball games to military funerals, we trekked across the country with neon protest signs in hand to tell others exactly how unclean they were. And that's exactly why they were headed for damnation. 
In 2009, that zeal brought me to Twitter. Initially, the people I encountered on that platform were just as hostile as I had expected. Sometimes the conversation even bled into real life. People I sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line to see me where I protested in their city. Then I met a man named David. He ran a blog called Jewlicious. And after several months of heated but friendly arguments online, he came out to see me on a picket line in New Orleans. He brought me a Middle Eastern dessert from Jerusalem where he lives, and I brought him kosher chocolate while I held a sign that said, God hates Jews. Multiple people over this time began to reach out to her on Twitter and began to um, interact with her as not just someone that was part of a fringe group, but as a person. And she began, her defenses began to come down as she met people like David, and she saw the love and the forgiveness that people can have towards another. So, eventually in 2012, she left the Westboro Baptist Church, left all of her relationships. She was disowned by her family. And this is what she says I wrote an apology for the harm that I'd caused, but I also knew that an apology could never undo any of it. All I could do was try to build a new life and find a way somehow to repair some of the damage. People had every reason to doubt my sincerity, but most of them didn't. And given my history, it was more that I could than more than I could have hoped for. Forgiveness and the benefit of the doubt, and it still amazes me. And I share that story as we look at Revelation chapter two because. Um, there's a little bit of Westboro Baptist that lives inside of us all. Um, I don't mean that we're all going to become a hate group. And um, those things are vile and disgusting. But what I learned by reading Megan's story is something that I think is key for us as people. And that is the more right that you think you are, you can justify a lack of love. Right? The more that you believe that you are right, you can begin to demonize other people. Now, that's one thing when you're in a fringe group like Westboro Baptist Church, and it's quite another thing when you're trying to live out the mission of God as the people of God in the midst of a world that's broken and full of fear. So um, there is a real temptation for us to forget about love when we think that we are right. That is a fundamental thing that went wrong in the church at Ephesus, and it's something that we're all tempted to do, to um, live in such a way. This happens inside of marriages, right? I mean, we will fight harder when we think we're right. Um, This happens in friendships. We're willing to walk away from people that we love because we think we're right. The idea that we're right oftentimes in our lives can trump the reality of love. But also the same thing that helped Megan is the only thing that can help us. And that is the reality of forgiveness that comes through the lips of other people. Particularly the love and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. um, And the reality of living life with other people in sincerity. And that's what we're going to look at as we look at Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? We're going to read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, it's sobering to consider the reality of our own lives and oftentimes the reality of the lack of love that can live inside of us. I thank you for pictures like this that are spoken out by you to win us and woo us back to yourself. I pray that you help us to remember the love that we have experienced at first. I pray that you would help us to begin to give that love away to other people so that we would shine like stars in the world. I pray that we wouldn't just be a a physical building with an address, but that you would make us a group of people and a community that is dominated by love, that loves and serves this city and the nations well because we have been so loved by you. To do that, we need you to break down our defenses. We need you to send your spirit to help us to understand your word and to perform this word inside of us. So do more than we can ask or imagine for the sake of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, they are uh, seven letters that are written to seven different churches. These are real churches that are throughout the Mediterranean region. In particular, they are uh, in modern-day Turkey. Um, But there's something about the way that these letters are written, that they're not only addressing those churches that were in the first century, but they're also addressing every church throughout all time, including ours. And so um, if you'll notice chapters 2 and 3, if you have like one of those red letter editions, they're all in red. That's because this is Jesus addressing the church. Um, And we have the benefit of being able to look at the entirety of the book of Revelation because sometimes it can seem pretty disconnected that there's these letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation uh, and then you kind of go to the end of the story and there's this um, wonderful wedding feast where the church is made the bride of Christ and salvation has come and forgiveness is beginning to take root and they celebrate forever. And and you can kind of wonder why are these letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation? And as I was thinking about this this week... uh, I just, I think it's a, it's a wonderful way for the bride to make herself ready for the coming of Jesus. These seven letters that we're going to look at over the next several weeks are pictures to help us 
to make ourselves ready for the coming of Jesus. Now, weddings have always been, it doesn't matter what culture you're in, those, they've been a big deal where people celebrate the coming together of a husband and a wife. Uh, most of the time, there are massive parties. People don't spare any expense. Um, in the United States, one of the biggest mysteries is around, like, what is the bride actually going to show up in? How is she going to make herself ready? Uh, I remember my own wedding day. That was one of the things that I was most excited about. We went through every um, conceivable strategy to keep ourselves from one another so that the moment that my bride walked through the door would be the first time that I laid eyes on her. She spent countless hours that day. Um, this is the difference between guys and girls. I think I, our wedding was at 1. I think I slept to 11. Um, I think she was up at 6 a.m. Like, um, and I mean, just breathtakingly gorgeous. I remember that she had made herself ready for that day. Right? So Jesus is writing to churches, right? In many cases, like you can imagine this, like the wedding day, and the bride is the one that sleeps till 11. She comes in in her PJs, and her hair's all like has some bedhead, right? That's a little bit of why these letters are in the Bible, so that the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, can make herself ready, right? So that we, and the way that the bride in the church, makes herself ready is by seeing and keeping their eyes on the bridegroom. There was something that had gone wrong at the church of Ephesus. They had forgotten about the bridegroom that had so loved them. They began to do things for Jesus. They began to sniff out false teachers. They began to hold on to truth in such a way that love no longer characterized who they were as a church. And I bet if you look back in your story somewhere, some way, you have experienced a group of believers that live that way, right? But what we're going to find out as we continue to look at the church at Ephesus is that that in and of itself, when a community no longer loves, it ceases to be a church, right? So we want to be a group of people that consistently look to the bridegroom, that we remember that there is a wedding day that approaches us and we make ourselves ready by looking and receiving His love. Now, all of these seven letters, they follow a pretty similar pattern. You can look down at verse 1 with me. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So every church that you're going to see, whether it's Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira, or you keep going, they're all written to the angel of the church. Now, that's a pretty unusual term, right? I mean, most of the time you think he's just going to write to the church. Now, commentators like across the board, this is a mystery to them, uh, and I'm not going to be able to unravel that mystery. Um, Some people think that these letters are just written to an angel, which literally means messenger, so it's probably written maybe to the leaders of the church. Um, I tend to think, along with a lot of people, that it actually is written to an angel because every time in the book of Revelation, 67 times, that refers to a supernatural being. Um, And as a pastor, that amazes me that Jesus entrusts the message to an angelic being to make sure that the church makes herself ready. It kind of comforts me to say that this message is this important, that I'm going to move heaven and earth to make sure that my people hear this message to make themselves ready for this joyous occasion that is the wedding supper of the Lamb. So, um, but also what you're going to see, there's also some 
uh, things that he wants to commend about certain churches. There's things that he wants to adjust about certain churches. Um, There's a picture of Jesus that is meant to specifically address the deficiencies that are at work in each and every church. There's things that they've forgotten about Jesus. In particular, verse 1 tells us what's gone wrong at the church of Ephesus. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, and that's the seven angels of the churches. We looked at that last week in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So last week we looked at the end of chapter 1, and it was a picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches of Jesus. So this church has forgotten that Jesus is present among them. They were so busy doing things for Jesus that they left Jesus behind. Right? And if you've been involved in church world for very long, you understand just how easy it is that you can do everything for Jesus and totally miss Jesus. So this is here to kind of woo us back to himself. Now, what's, what's interesting is that Jesus commends this church for their doctrinal precision, right? It's not as if, um, you know, he wants them just to be able to tolerate error. You know, I mean, these are... Um, if the church at Ephesus was here in the modern day, I mean, these would be the watchdog bloggers, you know? I mean, they would be just clicking it out at home, uh, probably at midnight in their mom's basement, telling everybody what they believe is wrong, right? You've probably come across those people. They might have um, a show that's called Heresy Hunters that uh, airs opposite of TBN, where they critique every single person that comes on television. I mean, that's the kind of people that are at the church of Ephesus. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to know that I appreciate your attention to detail, but you need to understand there's something that in the midst of that, that that truth matters absolutely, totally, and completely, but truth without love is not Christianity, right? And sometimes in church world, um, we can kind of make a false dichotomy between like um, people, it's a subtle way of saying like, I'm not a very nice person, and you just say, hey, I'm a truth teller, right? Do we hide behind that wall? Like, I'm just somebody that likes to tell the truth. Well, you know, according to the scriptures, this totally lacks love, and this totally undermines the whole message of Christianity. Truth and love must go together. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Even for his most harsh um, criticism of the Pharisees and their influence on the nation of Israel, he would call them blind guides, and then a couple of minutes later he would go and he would weep his eyes out because he wanted to draw the religious people back to himself, right? There's a way that you can hold on to truth but never get rid of love. And that's what we see in verse 4. Look at this. But this I have against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, the question that we have to ask in this situation is, is this a love for other people that has grown cold, or is this a love for Jesus that has grown cold? Now, anytime I ask a question like this, the answer is always yes. (laughs) Right? 
It's both. In Scripture, we love to make things either or when they're both and. I mean, there is an inextricable link between loving people and loving Jesus. There is an inextricable link between receiving love from Jesus, forgiveness for our sins, and being able to love other people. So if there is a lack of love that exists inside of our life, we don't immediately run to how can I love my neighbor better. First of all, we lift our gaze to the bridegroom who has first loved us. That's what's going on at the church of Ephesus. Now, specifically, I, d- I don't think they were loving one another very well. Like they, um, this was a church that, um, if you remember to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, he says, hey, I want you to speak the truth, right? But I want you to do that in love, right? And the truth that he's actually talking about there is the truth of the gospel. Speak the gospel to one another in love. There's no dichotomy between truth and love. Now, I remember when this became crystal clear to me as a person. I remember, I'm going to guess I was 21 years old when I picked up my first systematic theology book. Now, I'm kind of a theology nerd, so this would be like for my son who loves Doctor Who, this would be like getting something from Amazon in the mail and opening up uh, and enjoying something, some kind of new toy. And I read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Nobody told me I was a new Christian, that that was just a reference book. I read it from cover to cover, and I was armed with all kinds of truth. And I remember my mom was so thrilled that I had met Jesus. She came out to go to a conference with me. This was 1999. And I remember her commenting on the conference and the speaker. And the speaker was about my age. And he was a phenomenal communicator. I mean, he captivated the room. And she said something about how faithful he must have been for God to be able to use him in that way. And I said, Mom. I was like... That's nothing but works righteousness. I mean, this is all about the grace of God. And she broke down and ugly cried in front of me. And it was at this moment. I mean, I had made my mom cry as an unbeliever several times, but this was like I had deeply wounded my mother. And I realized that there is a way that you can use the truth of Scripture to hurt and harm other people, right? Truth matters, but how you handle the truth also matters. And that's what's going on at the church at Ephesus. And that was a marked moment for me because I was brokenhearted. I said, God, help me to never use your word as a weapon against anyone but the enemy, right? But so often, right, we want to point our guns at one another. Hey, they don't believe like I do over here, and they're wrong. And we just get into this big thing about, hey, that's what those people over there, they're wrong, and these people over here are wrong. But this is a call for us, yes, to hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is, but it also is a call for us to love um, each other well and to pursue the unity of the Spirit. So the love for Jesus and love for other people. They're so closely connected. So this is a picture of Jesus calling us as a body. There's, there's a lot of ways you can function as a church, right? But how we're going to function as a church is we are going to fight very hard to never forget the romance, to never forget that Jesus Christ emptied himself of 
his position of deity and he came into the world to love us and save us and serve us and wash our feet when we were dirty, right? That kind of gospel truth produces a gospel atmosphere where people want to be around. We live in a city and with people that are so disconnected from the love of God. Now we want that to be fueled by the truth that can save, but there is this real reality that we want to be a group of people that have a gospel atmosphere because we have been so loved. So when I was a, a much younger guy and I really didn't think I had much money to spare, um, you, you kind of have a check engine light, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I, silently, you could take a poll how many people have a check engine light on right now. But in my younger years, um, I just thought that was a, a mere suggestion, you know? Um, but the older I get, I, I realize that that's actually to help you not have more major damage uh, on down the line. And so I try to pay a little bit more of attention to those things. And so I want to talk just for a few minutes um, and really apply this to where we live Um, what might be some check engine lights for us about if our love is growing cold, if we are growing too familiar with the love of God for us, or our love for other people are growing cold. The first thing is, when we begin to view people as problems to be solved instead of people to be loved, right? There is a... this really ugly truth that you can get really good at ministry. You can really get good at the church thing. You can show up and eat your chips and your dips, right? And you can go to your campus outreach meeting on Sunday night, and you can really not ever love anyone, right? It can just, you can view people as problems to be solved, right? And the conversation that, and this, I mean, this can be my group therapy thing. I try to fight against this. But there can be times when there's someone right in front of you that has a real need that you probably are called by God to try to meet in some way, but you're thinking about something that you need to be doing later on in the day. Am I the only person that ever does that, that you view people like as problems to be fixed? Well, I think that's what's going on at the church at Ephesus. Um, it's very easy for us to become like my favorite literary character, Mr. Darcy, right? He only looked at a woman to find a flaw, right? We can just begin to view people as problems. Um, now, this is totally ironic, but this is what it looks like inside of my marriage. Like, I can't fix anything. And when I say anything, like, I really can't fix anything inside of my home. Like, I, I, I mean, we have <laughs> people on speed dial to replace light bulbs. That's how, it, like, incompetent I am and inside my home. But it's ironic, like when it comes to my wife, like she can outline the details of her day, right, at the end of the day, and it's always at five o'clock, and it's always when I'm walking through the door, and she has like detail upon detail, which are wonderful, by the way. (laughs) But as she does, like my instinct, and I think this is all guys' instinct, by the way, is to, to try to become Mr. Fix-It. Like, how ironic, the guy that can't fix anything, instead of listening and connecting and trying to empathize with where my wife is, or just kind of come alongside and, and be fellow human beings, like, I immediately go into problem-solving mode. It's like, I do this for a living. I got this. I can, you know, move over here and do this. And, 
You know, in those moments, right, I'm treating her more like a problem to be solved than a person to be loved, right? And that that can happen inside of a gospel community. That can happen inside of a campus ministry. All of those things. But what this is is a warning light that there's, there's something that's gone wrong inside of our heart. We've forgotten how much we have been loved, right? So we uh, begin to teach and treat people like problems and projects. And that's rampant inside the church. We begin to see everyone as uh, a backup singer. Uh, we're the main singer on stage, um, and everyone else is just kind of in, in the background. Or you can use a, a movie extra, right? You're the star of the show, and everybody else is just an extra inside of your story. Mike Mason, I think this is very insightful. It's a long quote, but I think it's really helpful. He says this, It is no small thing to open our hearts and our arms to allow another person, allow another to enter there, to grant another person the same worth, the same consequence, the same existential gravity that we take for granted in ourselves. We do not experience them as the overwhelming, comprehensive reality we find ourselves to be. Compared with us, they are just not quite real. We see them through a haze, the haze of our our own all-engulfing selfhood. We are constantly filtering others through the fine electronic mesh of our own private system of perception so that when it finally reaches our awareness and registers there, it is not usually a real person at all, but sort of a computer image. And I think that's how we view each other. A reconstruction based on our own personal programming and biases. We live in a heavily screened, heavily guarded reality. Not much gets through the barbed wire. Not much gets by the great bulldog of ego. And so the only solution to viewing people as extras in our story is to get caught up in a greater story. The story of the God who left heaven to come to earth to love us. And when we realize the love that we have received, people no longer are just problems or projects. They become fellow image bearers. The reality is, like, everybody that you come into contact, if you are a believer Um, they're either going to be part of your family because they are going to be a brother and sister that's going to be around the throne one day, or they're the mission, right? So all of those things are to free us to begin to love other people as we have been loved. Secondarily, another warning light is when we lose our own personal need for the gospel, right? When the message of Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead becomes just a message that we share with unbelievers. Or it becomes a tool for fixing other Christians, but we lose touch with our own need for this message, right? This is a message that is the power of God unto salvation, but it's so easy for us to think that it no longer applies to us after we reach a certain point of maturity. But this gospel, right... We buy into, and this is a uniquely Southern Christian thing. We think maturity means needing Jesus less and less instead of needing Jesus more and more. Like, if you want to grow up with a view of maturity, it is being desperate for Jesus, desperate for his work to continue inside of your life. Um, The other thing that we do is we pursue activity for God, without intimacy with God, right? This is an epidemic. 
we do things and we busy ourselves and we do good things. Like we're, uh, you know, we're Martha instead of Mary in Jesus' story where we're always doing things and we're never sitting at his feet. Revelation chapter 2 is an invitation for us to come and to sit at his feet. Um, Scott Souls in his book, Befriend, he has this wonderful picture. He said, we can either do ministry side by side with Jesus, right? And that doesn't even sound like that bad of an idea. Like Jesus is kind of just right beside us and we're going to go and we're kind of on the same mission together. We can either do mission and ministry side by side with Jesus or face to face with Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 is an invitation to do ministry face to face with Jesus. Scott Soule says this. He says, when you are face to face with love himself, you become more loving. When you're face to face with kindness himself, you become more kind. When you're face to face with generosity himself, you become more generous. When you are face to face with hospitality himself, you become more hospitable. It's how Jesus works. He rubs off on us. So this is, this, is, this is where we want to land as a church and as a people. We want to be a group of people that never cease to gaze at the beauty and the majesty and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The more that His mercy comes and touches your life, the more that His kindness touches your life, the more that you're going to be able to give that away to other people. So we don't have this massive evangelism strategy. We are praying for how God can help us be more involved in our city. But a primary means for us to be more evangelistic is to allow the love of Jesus Christ to come and dwell among us. The one that took on flesh so that he could draw near, that we would draw near to him so that his presence fills us and we can fill our city with his presence. That's what we are about. And I think that that's going to guard us as a group of people to become more and more like Jesus and have the aroma of Jesus. Right? It's impossible to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and give off the aroma of Jesus without actually experiencing his love. So, what is the solution? Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, this is sobering. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. You will no longer be a church from its place unless you repent. Jesus takes the reality of love and loving other people so seriously. He said, I will shut you down as a church if you do not love. Right? And it's because you're not really a church. Like, we're just really comfortable with an idea of church that there's a building on the side of the road that says such and such church, you know, and say, that's a church. Well, according to Jesus, church is a community that's dominated by love. Right? Just because you have a building, just because you have some people gathering, doesn't mean you have a church. If you don't have people receiving Jesus' love and giving Jesus' love away, it is not a church. So what do they do? They repent. Right? They repent and they do the works that they did at first. Now, for a long time, there was a massive disconnect in my own heart when it came to repentance. Like, repentance literally means turning. You know, so I, I would think, okay, I'm doing this bad thing here, and so I want to turn and go do a good thing here, and kind of totally neglecting the inside of myself. But this, I came across this definition from Jessica Thompson uh, a couple of years back, and I think it's really helpful. She says, repentance is falling in love again. 
right? So repentance, before it's about a change in behavior, it's about a change in heart. It's about us falling in love with Jesus because He has so loved us on the cross. And when we comprehend that, then we actually want to turn in the other direction, right? And that's the problem, I think, so oftentimes in Christianity. You can just say, you can just kind of break things into broad categories. These are the things that you should do. These are the things that you shouldn't do. So I'm going to try to do these things and not do these things. And we live this massively disconnected life from our own hearts when it's like, I want to gaze at Jesus who has so loved me. And when I do that, it actually actually makes me want to right, walk in the right direction. And if I'm walking in the wrong direction, the answer is not to change my behavior first. It's to look at Jesus inside of my heart and ex- experience his love fresh. That's what this is about. Remember the love that you had at first. And this is what's so cool, because you can read about this in Acts chapter 18. I mean, the gospel came in power for the church of Ephesus. I mean, these people had no clue that Jesus even existed. They had all of these magic books and there was sorcery and there was idolatry and they decided that they were going to burn all of those things and they were going to follow Jesus. And it was a response of love. And so my question, and I have to ask this of my own self, like, are we still willing to burn anything that obscures our view and our experience of Jesus? Are we willing to lay things down, right? Because I remember, I remember that first love experience. I didn't want anything to distract me from the love of the Savior. But there's something that happens as you follow him longer and longer. We become more and more tolerant of things that keep us from experiencing him. So that's just a question. Like, am I willing to burn the things that obscure my view? Then also, if you look at the book of Ephesians, this church is to be commended in so many ways. The Ephesian church is the, the glorious bride of Christ where Jews and Gentiles, people of different ethnicities, come together and they, they need the power of the Holy Spirit to make them a spiritual house together. They need the power of the Spirit to make unity like come among them and to dwell. And so the, question, the other question I think we have to ask ourselves is, are we still passionate about pursuing unity and diversity inside of our church. Because the only way that you can pursue unity and diversity at the same time is to experience the love of Jesus Christ for yourself. So we want to make that an expressed goal for us as a church. Not only, I mean, it is a great joy to see people of any, I mean, from any walk of life come to know Jesus. But I am praying for greater diversity, both socioeconomically and racially inside of our church. Because I think it commends the gospel right? And I mean, we should at least be as diverse as our city, but I would think um, as the gospel begins to take root that we could glorify him more and more because his love is taking place in our heart more and more. So I want to make that an express goal and an expressed prayer for us. And then it's, this is just not a, a call to pull up yourself by your bootstrap. This is, this is what's so beautiful. Look at verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means it's to us. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, I don't know how familiar you are with the story, but I mean, it begins in a garden, and people choose to eat of the wrong tree, and this tree brings death. 
Well, this is, if you look at the end of the book of Revelation, the same tree is there, and this tree brings life. And it's a picture of shalom. Like, that's the biblical concept. That means peace and wholeness and healing and flourishing. So it's a promise to churches that they decide very specifically to allow God's love to define them both corporately and evangelistically, that there is a promise that they can eat from the tree of life and that healing and wholeness will be theirs with God. But this is what's amazing for anybody that's ever been burned inside of a church. There will be wholeness and healing with those inside the church, right? There's so many invisible scars that happen inside of people's hearts, inside the covenant community of God. This is a promise that even though this call to unity, this call to celebrate diversity, this call to follow Jesus can be difficult, there's a promise that there's something even better and it's going to be wholeness and healing in the presence of God forever. That's who we are and that's who we want to be. And so I'm just going to um, invite the worship team to come on up and we're going to um, celebrate communion together. I want to pray that we would experience His love um, in fresh and new ways. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his great love. I pray that we would sing of your great love forevermore. I pray that it would define us in how we relate to each other and how we relate to the world. I thank you that you commend truth, but you also commend truth with love. I pray that the truth that dominates us is that you are a God that gave yourself for us because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.